The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace episodes to follow, we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. 
Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forward by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Is God a God of peace or a God of war? Typically, Mr. Ash arrives at his confusion by reading and comparing the following verses. Romans chapter 15, verse 33, quote, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Unquote. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, quote, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Unquote. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, quote, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Joel chapter 3, 9 and 10. Quote, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles Prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong, unquote. Connected to this, Mr. Ash also asks, Is Jesus about peace or is Jesus about the sword? Mr. Ash concludes this related confusion by reading and comparing the following verses. John chapter 14, verse 27. Quote, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, unquote. Acts chapter 10, verse 36, quote, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, unquote. Luke chapter 2, verse 14, quote, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, unquote. Luke chapter 22, verse 36, quote, Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one, unquote. Finally, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, quote, Think not I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword, unquote. With these two questions being asked, our first observation is the recognition of the profound lack of discernment and theological disconnect which Mr. Ash suffers from. A return to a basic correct understanding of biblical exegesis will easily resolve both questions. The first thing which needs to be understood is that these two questions are in fact one question. The reason is that the Bible teaches in total context that God is triune. We have God the Father, 
God the Son, i.e. Jesus, and God the Spirit, three in one. These are not separate gods, they are one. Jesus and God are one, according to John chapter 10, verse 30. Thus the two questions are one. The second observation is that both questions deal in large part with what the nature and attributes of God are. The problem is that Mr. Ash reads the Bible laboring under the misunderstanding that God must be limited to one attribute exclusively. So, Mr. Ash reads and comes across an initial declaration, for example, that God is love. Later, at some point, Mr. Ash reads another declaration that God, quote, hates, unquote. So, at this point, two things happen. One, because Mr. Ash has already decided that he is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, ethics, truth, reality, beauty, and significance. Mr. Ash dismisses any view of reality which does not agree with his as being an error. Two, because Mr. Ash insists on forcing God into monolithic, single-dimensional attributes, he can conveniently create a strawman character of God, which allows him to easily destroy the false God which he has created. The single best solution to resolving this and any number of Mr. Ash's questions is to recall that God has many attributes. More importantly, God is sovereign and perfect in all of his attributes which comprise his nature and character. Thus, God is love, but God is also just and righteous. Because God is just and righteous, God hates sin, rebellion, injustice, wickedness, evil, etc. God is peace, but because there is sin, rebellion, injustice, wickedness, evil, as a result of Satan, there is war. God is patient, long-suffering, merciful, etc. And he is also not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, ultimately God has fixed a day and a time when this war is over. His wrath will be poured out against Satan, sin, rebellion, injustice, evil, etc., and he will establish his perfect peace. It should also be understood that each of these words, peace, war, sword, love, hate, justice, mercy, etc., are terms which cannot be defined or understood except in the larger context of what is being discussed by the writer in question, as well as the literary genre in question. For example, Romans chapter 15, verse 33, quote, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Unquote. Also, John chapter 14, verse 27, quote, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, unquote. Acts chapter 10 verse 36, quote, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, unquote. 
And finally, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, quote, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, unquote. In each of the above verses, what is being discussed is not world or regional peace. We are not discussing any reduction or elimination of military action. We are not discussing some proposed goal of achieving pacifism or a magic eradication of human violence on earth. Instead, what is being discussed is the reconciliation between God and man, i.e. justification. As you will recall, the events of Genesis 3 created separation, enmity, and sin for man in his relationship with God. The propitiatory sacrifice and finished work of Jesus on the cross established the basis and mechanism by which individual believers are justified by faith through God's grace. Because God's just wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross, we who are called by God's grace to repentance will, once reconciled to God, have the axiomatic position in Christ of having peace with God. Once you reread the above verses with this idea, it becomes glaringly self-evident that this is precisely what the various authors above are talking about. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 3, Mr. Ash reads, quote, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, unquote. Mr. Ash conveniently admits the context. Here we have a verse as part of a song of praise. By some accounts, more than a million Israelites had just been delivered from Pharaoh and his armies who had been buried by the waters of the Red Sea. God single-handedly was responsible for saving them. The Hebrew word translated, quote, war, unquote, more properly means, quote, to fight or to do battle, unquote. So in full context, this song found in Exodus simply remembers and gives thanks and glory to God who fights or does battle for his people. It has nothing to do with some idea that God sits around hoping and praying for the next conflict, a la Francis Ford Coppola, Sam Peckinpah, or George Patton. Next we have Joel chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Quote, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong, unquote. Mr. Ash compares this to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, quote, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, unquote. The common denominator is that of swords, spears, plowshares, and pruning hooks. All of these were everyday items with which the writers and the readers of both 
Isaiah and Joel, i.e. that Jewish people would have been familiar with. Both, in fact, form the basis of Jewish cultural metaphors with which agrarian peoples would be able to relate to. So, when one is living within the culture of a farming community, if the eminent prospect of war is looming, the call to beat plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears would be another way to say, get ready for war. As one who is accustomed to farm life, if I yearn for eventual peace, or in fact the war is ending, it would be likewise be understood when we talk about beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, that we're talking about a return back to peace and normalcy. The problem is that Mr. Ash is laboring under the incorrect assumption that either one of these verses has something to do with a particular nature or attribute of God. Mr. Ash also assumes that both sayings have only one person, group, or event as its subject. The reality is that they are the same cultural metaphor being used by different writers to characterize two different events and subjects in history. In Joel chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, we have the prophet Joel preaching about the coming judgment of Israel prior to their exile into Assyria and Babylon. During this time, Israel's enemies, Assyria and Babylon, are instructed to beat plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears, since that is God's judgment against Israel. In other words, God allows Assyria and Babylon to go to war against Israel, prevail, and take them captain respectively as judgment for Israel's constant rebellion against God up to that point. Joel also simultaneously uses the same prophecy to relate another event far beyond that of Assyria and Babylon. In this event, Joel uses the same language to refer to a time when Israel's enemies will attempt, like Assyria and Babylon, to go to war against Israel and destroy them. This second event in history is discussed by Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, quote, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, unquote. The quote-unquote he in Isaiah's case is Jesus in his second coming as king of kings. Here, Jesus uses his sovereign power as Lord and God to not only establish peace in the sense of reconciliation with God, but peace on earth in the sense of an end to all war, violence, etc. This being the case, we can rightly say, quote, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, unquote. 
So the short answer is that we have a common cultural metaphor being used to describe different events on God's eschatological calendar. The moment Mr. Ash or anyone else attempts to drag these two events into one singular event, they create their own contradiction. Next, we have Luke chapter 22, verse 36, quote, Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one, unquote. Now, as Mr. Ash, and sadly even some of those within the church, look at this verse, they do so through the prism and misunderstanding of the phrase, quote, Jesus the Prince of Peace, unquote. They also compound their misunderstanding by racing to Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, and Luke chapter 6, verse 29. In these famous verses, Jesus says, quote, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also, unquote. From this and other verses taken out of context, they build the assumption that Jesus is only peace and never anything but peace at any time in eternity. Mr. Ash and others ignore that Jesus is the Prince of Peace in the sense, as stated before, that he is the agent of the Godhead, being fully God and fully man, who brings reconciliation, an end to enmity and separation between sinful man and holy God via his perfect life and propitiatory sacrifice on the cross. Instead, Mr. Ash and others attempt to force Jesus into a box where they disregard his justice, his righteousness, and other attributes. Consequently, Jesus and his followers wind up being effeminate pacifists who are unwilling to take a stand and defend themselves or their families from even the worst evils imaginable. In the case of Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Mr. Ash and others attempt to say one of two things. Either Jesus is flatly contradicting himself because in one place he claims to be the Prince of Peace, while here in others he advocates for carrying a sword which is a supposed tool of violence and hatred. If not this... Then the other claim from those trying to reconcile this supposed contradiction is to say that the quote sword unquote is really not a real sword, but rather a spiritual sword. The only problem is that if this sword is spiritual, then to be consistent, we should also say that the purse, the script, and the garment must likewise be spiritual. However, the fact that the disciples subsequently produce two swords in verse 38, which are visible, and Jesus sees them and comments on them, proves that they cannot be spiritual. Secondly, if Jesus is only the Prince of Peace who absolutely abhors any symbol such as swords, weapons, or other means of quote-unquote violence or quote-unquote hatred, then surely he would have told his disciples a long time before now to get rid of them so as not to ruin his reputation of being the quote-unquote Prince of Peace. 
does anyone really believe that Jesus ate, drank, and shared personal space with his disciples for three plus years, and he had no idea, no clue, despite his being fully God and fully man, that his disciples were carrying swords? Either Jesus is God, knows it, and approves for lack of action on his part, or Jesus is only a man and had no idea what was going on. If Jesus is just a man and nothing else, then who cares what he thinks or doesn't because his opinion is no more or less valid than anyone else and we don't need to worry about it. If Jesus is God, then he knows about the swords. If he knows, then that would be the time to say, uh, are you guys crazy? What are you doing with swords? Don't you realize that I'm the Prince of Peace? Get rid of those swords right now. In fact, sell them, buy food for the poor, you hypocrites. Rightly understood, the question of the biblical use of force more properly falls within the issue of the sanctity of life. It begins with the sixth commandment, which literally says, quote, Thou shalt not murder, unquote. As the Westminster Confession points out, the primary emphasis for the sanctity of life begins with our own life. Hence, any disregard, disrespect, or failure to first cherish our own lives, as well as the lives of others, would likewise violate this commandment. Thus, the sixth commandment, as well as scripture in context, supports the basis for one's self-defense, as well as the defense of others, as a proper exercise for the principle of the respect of the sanctity of life. Luke chapter 22 verse 36 is one of many verses wherein Jesus recognizes and authorizes the just necessity for his followers to defend themselves and others against those who would disregard the sanctity and safety of their lives as well as the lives of others. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, one must note the context which quotes from the Old Testament which talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. So the underlying issue of turning the other cheek has to do with one's mindset of personal revenge, retaliation, or vengeance. Jesus is speaking here of the principle of non-retaliation to affronts against one's own dignity, as well as lawsuits to gain one's personal assets. But neither Matthew chapter 5 verse 39 nor Luke chapter 6 verse 29 have anything to do with the principle of the right to self-defense as a response to the sanctity of human life. Finally, we have Matthew chapter 10 verse 34, quote, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword, unquote. Here again, Mr. Ash confuses vertical peace, i.e. cessation of enmity, or reconciliation between God and man, and 
horizontal peace in the sense of cessation of war, battles, enmity, hostility between man and man, nation versus nation, i.e. peace on earth. Without recognizing it, Mr. Ash actually proves the axiom of what this verse is talking about. Here is the example which is the reality. We all start out like Mr. Ash in that we are all at enmity with God. We all have the just wrath of God's judgment against us for our sin, which is our nature. Then God be praised because he is merciful and gracious to choose some to be reconciled to him through the finished work of his son, Jesus. Those who have been reconciled are now at peace with God. However, look at the vitriolic hostility which then exists axiomatically between Mr. Ash and the world who are still at enmity with God and those whom God has redeemed. This enmity or hostility between Mr. Ash and the world and Jesus was present during Jesus' day and provided the motivation by which the Mr. Ashes of Jesus' day proceeded to crucify him, as well as persecuting Jesus and his followers in that day and in this. It is the sword that Jesus predicted, and Mr. Ash provides the proof of this by his constant attacks on God, his Christ, and his people. So in the end, there is no contradiction because God is both a God of peace and a God of war. God is all of his attributes perfectly, and he is sovereign. For our next randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Can we make graven images or not? For this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Exodus chapter 20 verse 4, quote, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Unquote. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 1. Quote, Ye shall make you no idols nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land. Unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 15, quote, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven image or molten image, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares these to the following. Exodus chapter 25 verse 18, quote, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, unquote. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 15, quote, For he cast two pillars of brass of eighteen cubits high apiece, and a line of twelve cubits did compass either of them about, unquote. Now here to be very candid, Mr. Ash apparently is in denial regarding the glaring intellectual dishonesty and disingenuous nature of his question. 
The obvious fact of Mr. Ash's fraudulence is evident when we look at how Mr. Ash has intentionally quoted only parts of his selected verses to give the erroneous impression of a contradiction. For example, with Exodus chapter 20 verse 14, quote, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, unquote. Mr. Ash ignores verse 3 immediately preceding which says, quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, unquote, as well as verse 5 immediately following, which says, quote, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, unquote. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 1, quote, Ye shall make you no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land, unquote. Here, Mr. Ash stops mid-sentence and leaves out, quote, to bow down unto, for I am the Lord your God, unquote. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 15, quote, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven image or molten image, unquote. Here, a second time, Mr. Ash stops mid-sentence and leaves out, quote, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Unquote. So, in all three cases, Mr. Ash labors to take these verses out of context in order to build a straw man argument that God was making a prohibition against any kind of sculpting, carving, or craftsmanship for any reason. However, when the verses are read in context, it is clear that the prohibition in view is against God's people creating any kind of image to be used to worship as an idol, because worship is for God and God alone, who is spirit, and must be worshipped in spirit. As we look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 18, quote, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, unquote. And 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 15, quote, For he cast two pillars of brass of 18 cubits high apiece, and a line of 12 cubits did compass either them about, unquote. It is clear from these two verses that there are no prohibitions from God preceding it in them or following these verses or succeeding verses because the sculpting, carving, and craftsmanship in question is for the tabernacle and its furnishings. They are part of the building, the edifice where God's people would congregate and worship God. But the various items being crafted were never used as idols themselves to be worshipped. If this were not the case, then God's people would never be able to carve, sculpt, craft, or make anything 
Because the minute they did so, they would be in violation of creating something which bears resemblance of something else in creation. But God's people should not and do not serve the creation. We serve the Creator, God, and Him alone who is blessed forever. So again, in the end, there is no contradiction because Mr. Ash is comparing and contrasting two things which have nothing to do with one another. In all, to date, in this series, we have now examined and answered 11 questions regarding apparent Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's Word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these eleven and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively due, in fact, to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah.